Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy, folks. Welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. I've got Ben Bliss on the show. Ben is a super mega tenor who sings all over the world. I met Ben, gosh, it must have been three or four years ago at least, at L.A. Opera. He was a, a young artist with us and um, went, has, you know, I mean, come on. He's gone on to being one of the best tenors on the planet. He, he sings everywhere, all over Europe, at the Metropolitan Opera. Um, and he's a great guy. That's the thing I really like about Ben. Of course, he sings beautifully. He's a great colleague. He's fun to be around. But he's just a super cool dude who everybody likes. Everybody in the chorus likes to see him. He's uh, humble and uh, super talented. And, you know, we're pretty lucky. Anyway, we have a great conversation. We talk about all sorts of things, the business, personal stuff, life stuff, uh, COVID, of course. Um, it's a great chat. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. And here's Ben. I'm having a great time. I mean, uh, weirdly, a year of like forced retirement has been kind of great. Um, yeah. What have you been I, doing with yourself? I mean, how have you how have you made that work for you? What what benefits uh, have come, come out of that? Well, I guess I should ask. Are we is it are we like on the air right now or whatever? Yeah. Or yeah. Oh, OK, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's been great. Uh, you know, in, in Seattle, the first few uh, the first few months of everything, I did a lot of woodworking and, uh, you know, investing in my life in Seattle and everything. And then in September, uh, I was lucky enough to get to go do a job in Barcelona. Um, so I went there and did a Don Giovanni. Mm -hmm. And of course, we got, through, I think, three of our scheduled performances before we got shut down. Uh, but it was still great to get out and sing a little bit, make a couple bucks. And uh, man, also really weirdly, like a great time to travel. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, it's empty. Yeah. Yeah. The airlines were empty. The airports were deserted. I mean, I got a phenomenal hotel and everything for like half price. It was great. And also it's the only time you will ever be anywhere in Spain and have someone go, oh, my God, you're speaking English. Where are you from? How did you get here? You know, <laughs> that was cool. Um, and then, yeah, I, I came back and kind of dealt with things and, and moved on from Seattle and uh, kind of uh, continued to rediscover some things. I, I realized that uh, after college, I, I spent all my time and energy trying to claw my way up and pay rent and everything and uh, worked my butt off in the film production world for a few years and then switched dreams to the opera world and had a lot of ground to make up there and just work, work, working. And uh, yeah, in the, in the last couple of years, I've, I found myself thinking, oh, wow, okay, I have free time. Oh, yeah, I have hobbies. I have other things I'm interested in. And, and really during the pandemic, I've been able to double down on those. So I've been running and working out a lot. I've been reading like it's going out of style. Uh, I've been doing some writing, you know, as a former film student with a, a few old ideas knocking around in my head. It's been fun to uh, revisit those and uh, and think, well, gee, you know, I, I really want to try and get this thing down on paper before I die. And I will never have a better chance than I do right now. And uh, diving into some German, I've got some work coming up in the next few seasons in Germany. So I figured 
I've never really put all my weight behind really, really getting proficient at one of these languages. So honestly, I, I feel like uh, there's still not enough hours in the day to go for a run and, and work on my music and work on my German and do some writing and uh, occasionally catching up uh, as safely as I can with some old friends here in Southern California. It's uh it's been great. I'm having a great time. And it's just so good to come back to Southern California, which has and will always feel like home to me. I just right. love it. Yeah, I feel the same way about the uh, about the pandemic as I mean, obviously, we I know people who have passed away. I know people who have been terribly mm -hmm. affected by it. Our entire industry has been ravaged by a total shutdown. Um, For sure. But I've done the same thing. You know, I've picked up this podcast again. I do a daily podcast. I'm, I'm writing as well and working on a pilot with a, a friend of mine from the chorus. Um, nice. And it's it has been a productive uh, period for me, but I really do miss mostly seeing all my friends and it, people yeah. like you who come to town to L.A. and, uh, you know, um, Arturo and about, lots of people who I, I don't get to see much anymore. And um mm -hmm. It's it's tough, and I, the, the the other side of the coin is that I'm also kind of nervous about about going back. Um, I mean, I've gotten my vaccine, I have the first dose. Oh, the good. Dose, yeah, coming up. And um, how are we able to get it so soon? If you don't mind me asking. Well, you know, I'm just movers and shakers over here. No, no <laughs> I I, I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I teach voice for uh, Debbie Allen, who's a a lady here in town who produces shows and stuff like that, and. She's got a dance academy called Debbie Allen Dance Academy. And so I teach voice for her. So as an educator, okay. you know, it opened up. And then yeah. I like I think the Monday that it opened up, which was two weeks ago now or almost two weeks ago, I think at like 630 in the morning I got on. And, you know, it's like it's like um, it's like the Wild West. It's like everybody is it's like it's like waiting in line in Italy. Just everybody's just crowding <laughs> to get whatever they can. Um, yeah. So I just lucked out. Yeah, I just. Lucked oh, out. that's good. I'm, I'm very happy for you as like a relatively healthy non-educator man in his 30s i'm like i'll just i'll just eat the table scraps when everyone else is done and they're lying yeah. in italy you know yeah that's know the that's while, the idea i mean that's the idea and i think if um i think that's what everybody should do i um i've got students that want to come back to school and i was eligible so i didn't feel too uptight about it. We also have some sick people in our family. So I thought, okay, I can, oh, yeah. I can justify that. Um, uh, but I wanted to ask you about Barcelona and traveling abroad and, and singing during the, the time of pandemic in September, right before the uptick, as you said, you know, they sh mm -hmm. shut, shut you down. But did you feel safe uh, being in the house? Did they have protocols in place that made you made everybody feel okay? And then how did they treat the audience? How, how did they how did they get people in to see the show? And this is a question coming from somebody, as you know, who sings in a house of 3,300 people. Well, mm -hmm. I just don't see that as feeling safe. How did it feel to you? Uh, well, I, I got to say that personally, I, uh, you know, I've been kind of doing a lot of my traveling by myself, staying by myself in Barcelona and uh, wearing my mask, washing my hands and generally staying away from folks uh i felt very uh very comfortable uh the the whole the whole time really and also as a, a generally healthy person i feel like if you kind of follow the rules you just got to get really unlucky and the only way to make sure you don't get unlucky is just to stay home all the time and uh i felt like the odds were kind of in my favor so i i felt more comfortable than some people maybe would have and uh, that's been one of the interesting things about all of this is with a lack of really strong 
hard line leadership of here's what's okay, here's what's not, kind of meeting people where they are and some friends who only want to talk on Zoom and some other friends who are like, come over and have a barbecue and meeting people where they are. But as far as in Spain, um, I think I was probably most nervous about the travel itself, airports, mm -hmm. airplanes, uh, but they were all totally empty. I mean, I flew coach and laid down on a empty row of four seats and slept the whole way. So that was great. Um, once I got there to Spain, uh, all of our rehearsals, the first thing we did, of course, was have sort of a COVID protocols meeting in musical rehearsals. Chairs were six to 10 feet apart. We wore masks in the building at all times. We had to sanitize our hands before we could, uh, uh, you know, go through the turnstile to come in. Um, and then the company was giving us COVID tests once a week. Hmm. And uh, that was kind of the only hiccup we had is that they were giving us antibody tests. Uh, which if you are actively infected with the virus, uh, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert, but it, it has like a slightly lower uh, efficacy rate for an active infection. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we asked the company to give us uh, weekly PCR tests instead. Right, they right. agreed to that. Um, and then, yeah, all of our rehearsals were in masks, which is uncomfortable, you know, ends up in your nose or in your mouth, but other than being at home. And then once we got on stage with the orchestra, uh, you know, take your mask off, go on stage, sing, come back uh, and put your mask back on. And that uh, that worked pretty well. Um, but it, we kind of saw we had a, a fairly long rehearsal process for a bunch of people who had done the show before. We were rehearsing for about a month. Uh, and by the time opening night rolled around, we could kind of see the writing on the wall mm -hmm. in that cases had started to go up. I don't remember the exact order of events, but it was after our first or second show, they um they closed the restaurants, no more indoor dining. Uh, and then they closed outdoor dining. Uh, and we thought, okay, well, we must be next. But instead, what happened next is they put in a curfew. So you couldn't be out on the street past, I don't know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, unless you had an opera ticket. Literally, you can't eat, you can't even be on the street, but you can go to the opera. And I was like, man, Europe, they really got their priorities straight. <laughs> I know, right? It was very cool. And the, the house was at half capacity. Uh, so there were the seats were in groups of two and every other group of two uh, taped off. And uh, yeah, and the orchestra, besides the, the, the wind instruments, uh, brass and everything, were wearing masks. And so it felt, uh, it felt pretty safe. Uh, that said, uh, during, I think it was, our last show was the third of seven before we did get shut down. Uh, our Zerlina, uh, we got an email like two hours before the test or the show that our Zerlina's test had come back positive from a couple of days ago. That was on a, that must've been a Tuesday that we, I think the show was like Wednesday. The test was Tuesday. Um, I had had dinner with our Zerlina the Thursday before. So I was like, Oh geez. Yeah. Um, but my test had come back negative from Tuesday as had the rest of the cast. So they, it was one of the more interesting jump-in experiences of my career. They called a local soprano who knew the role, um, but didn't didn't really know it that well. So she did some emergency staging and then was walking around in the performance with her score on stage uh, to you know get all the musical entrances and things. And I think once that happened, we were all on stage that night, just like, okay, we'll see what happens. And, and also knowing pretty well that this is probably going to be our last show uh sure. considering the circumstances and so indeed it was so i stuck around for a few days and then came home uh so i guess that is to say i felt fairly comfortable 
but even with all of those precautions, we did still have a cast member who uh, became infected. Her case was not um, terribly intense or serious. She kind of had an uncomfortable cold and stayed in her apartment for a week and a half, two weeks. But uh, nobody yeah, else, was... nobody else contracted it in the cast or in, in the theater. Correct. Wow. It was just her. Yeah. So uh, all that is to say, it didn't prevent everyone from getting sick. But even though one person did get sick, it prevented other people from getting it. And uh, like I said, it, it was great to be on stage again great to make a couple of bucks and honestly just I, i'm really happy to have for the sake of the memoirs one day <laughs> to have had a real performance experience in covid just to kind of see what it was like yeah 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 and do you have really what's your when's your next uh you said you have some work coming up in germany is that what's coming up next for you uh my next job will be starting in uh just over a month uh you know god willing uh, i'll mm -hmm. be singing capriccio strauss opera in zurich uh, which uh, my friends who live in, in Europe and Germany and everything, most of them, I believe the situation there currently is that things are pretty well locked down mm -hmm. until mm -hmm. April 1st or Easter or something like that. So mm -hmm. I think unless things get demonstrably worse in the next month, that hopefully it will go ahead and the timing will be right. And that I think it'll be one of the first things to, to really get rolling performances, I believe will start in, uh, mid May or something. So uh -huh. between the vaccine and the warm weather and the sunshine, hopefully we'll be, we'll be on track. But if not sure. that, the next thing is the Met in September. So if for no other reason than not having to find another six or seven months of, uh, <laughs> of something to keep me occupied, it would, it would be great to, to see this show happen. And what do you do? What are you singing at the Met if it goes through? Uh, if, if the Met opens, if New York state and city lets the Met open and all 17 unions agree to their <laughs> to their new contracts or, or renegotiations. Yeah, CBAs, whatever it'll be. Yeah, uh, uh -huh. yeah, that show is supposed to be Iphigenie en Toride, uh -huh. which will be my first Gluck, my first French. Uh, so Your first I've French? Some, yeah, I've never really sung anything in French. No Manon? Of, like, song repertoire. No Manon, no uh, Faust. So that'll be fun. <laughs> Man, I mean, those things are perfect for you. I can see you sing Faust today. Oh, well, I hope so. That's That's been kind of the interesting thing in the first five years or so of my career here. I've been uh, coming up in school and everything during the era of Rolando Villazon and all the brilliant things he was doing. It also sort of tempered my ambition to say, hey, you know what, if I'm going to sing Mozart mostly for the first five years of my career, that works. I know I can go out on stage and wind up and, you know, try and swing for the fences safely every night as opposed to go out and oh god and try not to crack or blow out my voice or whatever so the, another upside is that there's a lot of uh fertile ground uh that, that is yet to be turned over so lots of good opportunities now is that a matter of design for you or was it as you say just the luck of the draw that you've been hailed as a mozartian tenor um, because obviously, you know, anybody that goes to music school, especially tenors like you, like you and like me, uh, your teachers put you on Mozart and it's Mozart, Mozart, Mozart. And then my teachers would always say, well, you go from here to, to early Verdi and to mid Verdi and maybe hit the French repertoire. And there's a very plotted out course, to, to, you know, depending on your Fach. And uh, is that is that something that you plan to do for longevity or is that just the luck of the draw for you? Oh, you know, it's always, it's things, there's nothing that's ever black and white. It's always some shade of gray. And so um, to go back to what I was saying, I think it was my general thing was, man, 
Nessendorma is a great aria. I would love to sing that, <laughs> but I'd rather wait until I can sing it well than force it. But uh, you're a so tenor. I, All tenors sing Nessendorma, Ben. I mean, yeah. I've been hired well, to sing Nessendorma. Everybody sing it in sings the shower. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But uh, so so I, I was in no hurry. I, I didn't say I want to sing my first Rodolfo by the time I'm 30. Um, so I, I was in no hurry. And then it turns out that as my sort of path through the young artist world and the, the early career world uh, was progressing, that uh, that it seemed my voice just people that knew more than me and have been listening to singers since before I was born said, oh, the way you sing Mozart uh is good. That's what we want to hire you to do. And it has felt comfortable to me. And most days it's I can roll out of bed and sing it. And so it feels like the right thing. So I've been happy to, I mean, that's of course a bit of a hyperbole, but uh, I've been happy to do that and, uh, and to stay sort of in, in my green zone. Um, and I, I think I could have branched out a little bit more, uh, but that's something that I'm, I'm exploring now and, and, sure. and branching out a little bit more in the next few years. So it was, it was both. Sure, sure. I I found I, I started that way too. I, I mean, I was a leggero when I started. So Rossini, Donizetti, some Mozart uh, was kind mm -hmm. of pushing it a little bit when I started, and I've always found it to be um, really. It was really easy for me as well, and then suddenly it became really hard, and I just stopped singing mm. Mozart. And mm. um, the the thing that I find most annoying about singing Mozart is how easy it looks, how easy it sounds, and how little the audience seems to care about what we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the well, arias are long and they're hard. It, yeah, they're so, God, I mean, it's just, especially abduction is the, yeah, I know. I oh, know. golf clap, yeah. Abduction is the real killer because there's four arias in that show, and it's early Mozart, so dramatically it's like not the most, all four arias are, Oh, I'm really excited to see the soprano, but kind of nervous, but really excited, but kind of nervous. <laughs> and three of them are like 12 pages long. Yeah, with melismas nonstop. One, and yeah. Yeah. But the hardest one is a minute and a half long, and it's the first number of the whole show. You're the first voice to be heard singing, and you go three different times. There's a figure where you go low G, high G, G flat, A, da, 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 da right out of the gate man and it's but it's also not the soprano or there's not big huge flowering high notes and everything right. so it's like oh very yeah, nice it's exposition it's like, yeah it's like watching tiger woods putt you're like oh yeah that looks good it's like you have no idea <laughs> exactly exactly that that's that's something i um yeah i'm i'm glad to not be singing mozart or or rossini for that matter i did a i did a figaro once and it's the same way with uh, almaviva you know he comes out and sings a really hard aria right off the bat yeah uh, well so does the baritone i mean it, that's it happens it happens i wanted to i also wanted to talk to you this is kind of off the subject but i you know the, for the last two years i've been working to um open a new orchestra here in los angeles called orchestra oh, los angeles cool. we've got a, a, a terrific amazing board artistic board and a board of directors um and we got shut down right at the beginning of the pandemic we had our gala slated for the beginning of march a, a year ago mm. and um and that got you know we couldn't do it uh, i know that you threw your hat in the ring as an impresario a, as well um yeah, with mise-en-scene and i That's wanted right. to i did want to talk to you about that when that came out um i was really intrigued and i'm really glad to have you on this call because i wanted to ask you how you got into 
uh, first the idea of being an impresario. What were the challenges? I I don't know if it's still in operation, and and if it's not, not. so what? Tell me that story. Yeah, tell me that story. Well, it's uh, the the story all revolves around a really dear friend and collaborative mine, a collaborator of mine, uh, who I linked up with in the Lindemann Young Artist Program at the Met. Mm-hmm. He's a pianist from Australia named Lachlan Glenn. Uh, and he's also uh, um, terribly entrepreneurial and hardworking and brilliant. He's just a phenomenal guy. He's, he's, he's such a sweet guy. I really miss seeing him. I haven't been to New York for a year. But uh, we spent a lot of time together in Lindemann. We did some recitals together. And they eventually turned into, you know, long walks and beers and this and that. And we started talking about, look, I think that what we do is really, really cool. It's, it's really interesting and there is craftsmanship in it that I think a lot of people don't notice or don't see because they're too far away or it feels too fancy or it's too expensive or whatever. And we really thought, gosh, I, I, I want to perform for my peers and my demographic and I really think that they would enjoy it. Uh, what are the barriers there? And then also as artists, uh, what what kind of world do we want to live and work in? I want to perform for my peers. I would love to make a living wage. Uh, I would love to have my living wage also contribute to a 401k. Uh, I would love to, at the beginning of every production, instead of walking into a room full of strangers uh, who I don't know and have never collaborated with, to start with a group of people who I know, singers whose instincts I'm aware of and can count on and a conductor who I can fall back on. Uh, and I think that would really contribute to the, uh, the cohesion and the, the end artistic product. And uh, stepping out here a little bit, my first, when I was a film student, my first internship working in uh, Los Angeles in that field, was at an independent uh, acquisition and distribution company called First Independent Pictures, which I believe also doesn't exist anymore. Um, It was before streaming. uh, And so they would go to film festivals and look for films to buy and theatrically release and release on DVD and, you know, turn a profit. Mm -hmm. And as the intern, I would often get handed a stack of DVDs as tall as I am. And they'd say, okay, you know, find the good ones. Tell us which ones to watch and to look at. I was like, okay, well, I don't have... 200 hours a week to watch DVDs. What am I looking for? I can't watch all of these. And they said three things. It's a lot like real estate, a name. And if there's not a name, look for a name. And if you can't find a name, try and find a name. Because if there's a name, if there's a name in it, it'll sell. You know, it's why there's Transformers 9. It's a sold property. You don't have to say, oh, it's a movie about a guy from Sweden who. Yeah, there's no pitch. Pre-sold. Yeah. Right. The way that translates into the opera world is um, this also goes to some of the experience I've had in in kind of like gauging the difference in audiences between Europe and the U.S. I find that in Europe, opera and classical music is very much a part of the cultural fabric. And so whether or not people are fans, they grow up with it and they understand it and they know it. It's in their vernacular, some of it. In the United States, um, without, uh, you know, I don't want to put this in a negative light, but oftentimes in the United States, I feel if I go on stage with the idea in the back of my head that 25 to 50% of the audience that I'm performing for that day has never seen an opera before, uh, that that kind of, that, that seems to 
that seems to feel right. I'm sure there's some people with statistics and market research who could say otherwise. All that is to say, how do you sell opera in the United States to someone who's never seen an opera before? How do you sell right. Armour Seville to someone who's never seen an opera? Especially um, when it depends on like a, a 19th century misconception or a paradigm that that is kind of stuck in their minds as what opera is. That, that's yeah. been, right? Yeah. And so I thought, well, just like movies, a name. You want to sell a name. Now, the issue is that uh, if L.A. Opera says, hey, Ben, come sing Don Giovanni. We want you to sing Don Ottavio. You know, they can't just put my face on a poster and say, hey, everyone, come see Ben Bliss. Nobody knows who I am. I don't have records out there like Domingo and the Three Tenors and Marilyn Horn did in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And I'm only here for this one show. So they can't really build a brand with me or have me be a part of the brand that they're building. So they, you know, they, they put Placido or used to put Placido on the poster or Conlon or whoever. That makes sense. But at best, you see the back of Conlon's head when he turns around and everything. And the most educated audiences could close their eyes. And I would think have a very difficult time saying, oh, yeah, this is I can tell this is Conlon conducting or or whoever. All that is to say for the artists, if we had a more European system, there was a company where you could come and maybe not make as much as you would as a soloist uh, contractor traveling around, but say, hey, look, come spend six months a year in, uh, in mise-en-scene studios case, the acronym is MESS. Come spend our ultimate goal that we we're working towards. Come spend six months a year in New York. You will make a living wage. You'll get a 401k contribution. You'll get health insurance. You'll work with the same artists for a period of two or three years. So you're coming back to an artistic family, an artistic home. And our company can then build our brand on you. Uh, you might not be making a huge amount of money, but you can live on it. You'll get benefits and we will promote the hell out of you. And the way we'll do that is we will have uh, uh, smaller events that will feature our artists so we'll have you go do uh, a series of recitals uh, around town at churches or nightclubs or community centers or whatever uh, and also they'll be based around what you want to do what have you always wanted to perform that no one has offered you you want to sing with a string quartet you want to sing with a jazz combo you want to play your guitar you want to sing a duet with a marimba awesome we will help you produce that and streamline it make it good and then you can go do it 10 times in a year and we'll pay you for that and then when we produce a full opera, we won't say, hey, come check out some opera you've never heard of by a composer you read about in a history book 20 years ago. We'll say, come see tenor Omar Crook, who you hear heard sing with the jazz band and with a string quartet at these events. Come see him do what he really does. And then you pull people in. Now, that's the artist side from the audience side. What are the barriers to young people coming to the opera, our peers? Um, it's expensive, right? So we set it up like a tech startup. Instead of just charging a ticket price, anybody can RSVP and come to their first mess event for free. Uh, so they would come to see your recital for free. Or uh, we had singers from a, a Broadway musical, two different Broadway musicals come together and collaborate and do a program of, I think it was like uh, traditional Jewish songs. Uh, we hired a choir once. You come to these events, it's short, it's two 25-minute sets of music, there's an open bar, there's free food, and it's a social club. I mean, one of my favorite stories going back is, you know why the Metropolitan Opera exists? Because when Rockefeller was new money, 
his wife could not get a private box at the New York Opera Company to, you know, clack with her friends and show off her new dresses because they were new money. So her husband started the Metropolitan Opera so his wife could have a place to go hang out with her friends. Opera has always been a social club. It's sure. a country club. Uh, and the music, for better or for worse, has many times been secondary. Uh, I've had the experience going to different opera houses where as a young person, if somebody sees me with my cell phone, you know, I get glared at. It's like golfing. You don't know the etiquette. It's a little crusty sometimes. You don't necessarily feel welcomed. It's not cool. It's not fun. Let's make it cheap uh, or at least the lower the cost of experimentation so you can come and go, oh, my God, this is really cool. Now I have to become a member. It's $250 a year, but then I can come to up to six events or I can be a thousand dollar a year member and come to 20 events. Um, the cost of experimentation is low. The social club aspect is fun. You can meet people there, build a community around the art form, get to know the artists, see them repeatedly in varied settings. Uh, and the last thing was that I felt really strongly about is stems out of another, uh, maybe less than purest perspective that I have on the opera world. Uh, which comes from my very first exposure to opera. My first opera memory was, like many people my age, watching Pavarotti sing on TV with the three tenors. And my reaction wasn't, oh my God, this is so beautiful. It wasn't, oh my God, he's so gigantic. What language is he speaking? It was, that guy's a freak. How do you do that? It's a freak. It's like watching someone do a triple backflip. How does that work? Now, as a showman, <laughs> much like light, uh, the brightness of a light decreases exponentially the further away you get from it. It's the same thing with a freak show. If you see somebody swallow a sword from a quarter mile away, you'll go, oh, that weird. What the hell was that? If they're in a room with you with 30 other people, it's going to blow your freaking mind. Classical music is the same thing. You have to be up close to feel that craftsmanship and experience the, the more than just the sound but to, to and that's that's the thing with live performance when you're in the room with people you're all breathing that vibrating air you're experiencing sound waves traveling through the air and your brain is decoding yeah, hitting your body into yeah absolutely meaningful sound so we're like let's support artists living wage let you have creative freedom and uh, and an artistic home and we'll give you uh, your peers to sing in front of and they will come for an affordable price they'll be close up and I think it was a great idea I think it was phenomenal and we we built a bigger uh, paying audience base than uh, the Metropolitan Opera Young Associates Lincoln Center Young Associates Carnegie Hall Young Patrons Association bigger than all of them in our spare time for literally a fraction of the budget in a year and a half and our average member age was 31 uh, and we ended up finding ourselves in a position where we're like, you know what, our best path towards profitability might be selling our user data to places like Carnegie Hall and the Met, you know, as sort of a, a gateway drug, if you will. Now, where we uh, found difficulty uh, was, as you might expect, fundraising. We had like a five to 10 year plan towards actually being profitable. Uh, which would be great. But in the meantime, again, much like a startup, we were pretty capital intensive. And uh, we had a lot of very generous uh, donors who helped us get launched. And uh, we got a grant from the Music Academy of the West here in Southern California that was tremendously helpful. 
Uh, but all that is to say that in a razor thin budgeted art form like opera, uh, that's very resource intensive, um, because of the ways these companies are set up, innovation uh, is often not historically a huge part of the setup um, because it is an, a traditional older art form. And because um, when, when you don't really have to worry about making a profit and you don't really have to be tied to the economic value of what you produce versus what it costs, there's not as much of a motivation to innovate. Therefore, among donor bases, someone comes to you and goes, I have a completely new idea for an opera company. From the ground up, it's different. It's the way of the future. Traditional opera donors are not used to hearing those kinds of pitches. And I think a lot of those structural uh, inefficiencies and uh, holdbacks are something that a lot of people haven't really considered or thought about in a sort of a dynamic, progressive change oriented way and just say, well, look, if we just hire better singers and get better productions, the people will come. Uh, and we just thought about it in a wholly different way. So we raised a lot of money. We had a lot of uh, events. We built up our membership base. And uh, another difficult factor was at the time I was living in Seattle. So I wasn't in New York all the time, able to go to meetings and uh, with donors and uh, um uh, hires and singers and this and that and it turned into uh, you know 95 percent running around begging for money uh which i find to be incredibly taxing and kind of uncomfortable even though i really believed in the product we were trying to fund um and yeah it just turned into mostly that and we started to not be able to meet some of our goals and the one thing we didn't want to do was take out debt and fold owing people tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we took about a very small amount of debt uh, in the hopes to expand and massively increase our fundraising. And then uh, it just didn't happen. So we figured, okay, maybe we were ahead of our time. Maybe we screwed it up, who knows, but we really gave this our best shot. Now, hopefully somebody else can stand on our shoulders and pick up where we left off and, and innovate in the industry. But. Uh, but I really think a lot of the concepts that were folded into our company uh, could could still have legs and could still really, really help our art form. And uh, I mean, especially in COVID times, what would be better than uh, standing in a room with 40 masked people listening to a world-class string quartet up close? I mean, that might be what we're all forced to do after this anyway. So we'll yeah, see. that's I the long this, answer. <laughs> yeah, this idea of the, of the revamped uh, idea of the salon I think mm -hmm. really has legs. And I think that it is something that we could continue to do here in Los Angeles. Um, and the things that you outlined are very much in line with the things that we're trying to do at Orchestra Los Angeles or are planning on doing with Orchestra oh, good. Los Angeles. Glad to hear that. Um, it's, um, it is a real challenge though, to rebrand an art form that is so, like I said earlier, so steeped in uh, 19th century paradigms. Yeah. And, and the idea of, you know, when you ask an American not to, I mean, that's kind of cruel, but the average, the average person, what do you mm -hmm. think of when you think of the word orchestra or opera, you know, it's, it's white bow ties, tails, quiet, yeah. uncomfortable. What's the mm -hmm. language long, boring. Yeah. These are all the, the adjectives that come to mind. And, um, it's a challenge that, that we're, 
we're trying to deal with as well because i i feel like the the art that we produce you and the rest of our colleagues really means something and it it it's um it's important and i don't feel yeah. like i mean finally with this new uh government that we've got uh, maybe that'll change but i i feel like people just don't take art in general very seriously anymore and um i don't know if it's an right. uphill battle or not i'm i'm not sure um but is this something that you would be um interested in doing in the future like uh, what are your plans do you have plans and the reason i ask that is that i'm 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 over, i just turned 51 mm-hmm. and um so i'm substantially older than you are but i i've been a professional singer for 25 years and I see that I, I need to start looking at other things for the future. Do you, are you at that age? Or are you still just going, you know, full hog into being a performer? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I think hopefully, you know, if I play my cards right, I'll, I'll have, uh, you know, another sure. couple of decades of, of fruitful uh, professional experience ahead of me. Uh, but sure. I mean, the thought, the thought is always there and, um, and I, that's been kind of one of the blessings of, of this COVID time, I suppose, is the free time to uh, not necessarily say, okay, well, in 20 years, I'm going to switch and I'm going to do this. I need to start learning about real estate now mm-hmm. so that I can start developing that and switch careers. Instead, I've been able to really invest some time and some energy into other creative hobbies that hopefully if I'm able to continue nurturing those uh, at some point, if I need to or want to i can switch over and do that full-time i thought you know maybe woodworking or or writing or, or something but uh I, well and i guess to go back to your original thing about the impresario that was um, and this kind of this is also the same for teaching for me in that uh i felt like i had the the, the vision and maybe some of the connections and, and business acumen to get that off the ground Weirdly, I think what I do not possess is the skills to be an impresario. Uh, having not been, a, having not loved my first opera, and 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 not having spent all of my free time listening to the great recordings and the great singers and everything like that, I, I love it and I appreciate it. But uh, that's not the end of my profession that that keeps me going in it, and as such. Uh, in, in, in many ways, I feel wildly underqualified to, to, to be associated with anyone who calls themselves an impresario because I'm, I'm always in awe of those people and they're not their functional working knowledge of the art form and the, the artists and everything. And I think that goes for teaching too. I have a very good understanding of how I sing and how I approach my own difficulties and technical challenges and everything. But, um, I don't. I don't think I. I possess the the, the skills and the maybe patience and passion to uh, to help other people uh, uncover the uh, possibility in their voice. And also having been very very blessed in college with a teacher who is the greatest educator I've ever known. Who wakes up thinking about that every day and who is so proud of his students and sees things in them that they don't see themselves. This is why I'm a singer and hounds them until until they uncover it and go for it and figure it out i don't i i I don't think i would have that kind of uh drive and passion as a teacher and i think that's what uh i would want to give it i wouldn't want to give it anything less than that and i don't have that to give so i don't know what i'll do maybe i'll write screenplays or do real estate or 
you know, mow lawns. Who knows? Sure, sure. <laughs> who who was that teacher that inspired you so much? If you don't mind, uh, his name is Patrick Gazer, G O E S E R, and he's a teacher at Chapman University. He hasn't aged a day since I met him in two thousand four. Uh, he's eighty three and goes a million miles an hour, and he comes from a long long heritage and lineage of uh, old school German teachers, Horst Günther and all these people. And it's a, a very uh, light, boyish, don't push it, let your voice do what it does kind of guy. And it's, he's, he's phenomenal. He's getting his second shot this week and then I'm going to go down and have some lessons with him. <laughs> oh, terrific. You know, I took, yeah. a, I took, a, I did a Nats masterclass uh, when I was in college. I studied with a man named Mark Goodrich at um, Cal mm -hmm. State Fullerton and I did a, a master class with Patrick at USC and um, oh nice and I still use one of the things that he uh, one of the phrases that he taught me with my students which hmm. is um, when you take that relaxing breath let your larynx float and then he always used to say uh, in this master class he said feel that puff of air in the roof of your mouth yeah yeah and i always totally. I, I yeah i always uh teach that to my students think of a pre think of that when a yawn sneaks up on you and you're not expecting it and you feel that puff of air in the top of your mouth yeah he has useful. a really uh a really um approachable uh very descriptive kinesthetic awareness that he, he can describe things and oh yeah you just feel that that's that's a one of the weird things about being a singer is even if you couldn't throw a baseball to save your life. It's a lot like being an athlete. You have to have a certain awareness of your body. Some of it may be innate and a lot of it is developed and everything. And it has to be automatic. Yeah. It's like you have to build mm -hmm. in this muscle memory. And I teach yeah. that with my students that I said, you know, it's, I remember watching that Pavarotti um, masterclass where he he sings a major scale, I think of G to G or something. And mm -hmm. it sounds so simple. He says, it's very simple. It took me only 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly that clip. And it's, it's just so this true. muscle memory you've got to teach people that don't, that are, it's foreign to them. You know, yeah. this this idea of breathing and the way that we make sound as a singer, it's just, it's bass. It's fundamental. It's like babies mm -hmm. can, can scream for hours and hours and not get hoarse. Yeah. And then yeah. our culture teaches us to suck in our belly and stand up straight and to, you know, it takes all that away. Yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah, I know. It's wild. It's, 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 a, it's, I mean, it's, it's a freak show, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, I always talk to, I, I think there's a lot of focus in the academic world, uh, you know, and, and not for lack of good reason, uh, but a lot of focus on doing it correctly. You know, mm -hmm. the Italian, the style, the, the whatever, so the it, it needs to be technique. correct. Sure, which is which is true. You need to learn the rules and everything like that, so you're not just willy nilly. But all that is to say that uh, once you figure out how to get it right, you can stop focusing on that. That's not mm -hmm. the point. Nobody right. pays money to go hear someone do it right. Uh, and the analogy that I use is that uh, poets and painters don't uh, learn to mix color and iambic pentameter so that they can do it right. They learn to use the tool in their toolbox to tell a story yeah. using the medium that they have chosen. And not to forget that your voice is simply the medium. It's the paint. It's the words. And that you learn to use it so that you can say what you have to say. And during the process of learning to use those tools, don't forget what it is that you started doing. out to yeah, say. Yeah, what are you doing? Place. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and if you realize that, oh, crap, I've been learning all the tools. Did I ever have anything to say? Well, 
think of something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I've, I've, I've seen that. I mean, I, as a teacher, that's by far the hardest thing to teach. I, I mean, some of my, some of my students are quite young, so they just don't have the life experience to really say much of anything. Um, mm -hmm. And it's very difficult. And I, uh, what you're saying was illustrated so perfectly. I went to see a, a show at LA Opera by a, a uh, it was a Nemorino that was sung by a very famous Mexican tenor that you and I both know. And mm -hmm. one of the greatest bel canto singers, uh, especially of the 90s, like nobody could touch his coloratura and his phrasing and all that stuff. Anyway, I saw his Nemorino in the first 10 minutes. I thought, holy shit, this is, I've never heard anything like that. And then on minute mm -hmm. 11, I could see the score in my head because I'd sung Nemorino myself. And I could see the score in my head. And I'm like, oh, that's what he's going to do. Here it comes. Yep, that's that. Yeah, that's that. And it's yeah. after about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I thought, okay, like now what? I, I want to, can he fall down or crack or do something like something? It's yeah. like I could just stay home in my underwear and listen to a CD, which, right? you know, some people like and some people don't. But I much right. prefer a singer who has something to say. And yeah. how well, they do it is slightly less important than what they're doing. Exactly. And that can be one of the difficult things is... Um, I mean, again, like, how many times do you think that uh, Mick Jagger wants to play is I, for some reason, I'm drawing a blank, but you know, especially those say this is one of the reasons I didn't want to be like Mr. Mozart for too long is because there's only so many times you can sing the same song and play the same role over and over and over again, before the hardest thing becomes finding a way to keep some life in it. Right. And, and some some newness and everything. And uh, yeah, that can be that can be tough. And variety is the spice of life. Honestly, what's a lot harder than finding a way to, to sing it with with meaning and feeling over and over again is spending a month rehearsing the same role with a director who doesn't really know what they want to do. And it's just going to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And it's like, you know what, when you've rehearsed the same role for a month, 12 times. It's like, hey, I can do it however you want me to. What's the concept? Where do I stand? And you don't want to blunt the artistic process, but it's like, yeah, that that can be a little a little tedious. Have you have you ever been? Um, and this is this has happened to me. Have you ever worked with a director who, um, you just ignored once you got out on stage? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, plenty of directors who you can you can start ignoring in the rehearsal room. They can't tell the difference because they don't even know what the words. Are. I've there was there's one of the most high profile shows I've ever been in at the most high profile opera house I can think of, where we had six weeks to rehearse a new production, and it was a really weird long process where we were just kind of farting around. Uh, but we trusted him. We thought we thought we trusted that he knew where he was taking us and that it would be someplace great and enlightening. Well, we found out three and a half weeks through rehearsal. He didn't even know what the words meant. He had no idea. And we we, we had our you know, we rehearsed for six weeks. And at the dress rehearsal, they said, eh, we're probably not gonna be able to get all the way through. We're gonna have to stop and, and do some stuff. Yeah, and we we're like, I, no, no way. Yeah. If you, you can stop, but we're not going to we got to get this run through. So it's there, there's there's plenty of things to be frustrated about yeah. in, in this in this business but you know yeah, i guess we, as long as you're yeah. frustrated it means you still give a shit <laughs> I, yeah i mean i've i've gone through both of those but but i've had that happen actually where a director would come up on stage and she'd say why are you asking a question with that line and, and i had to go down to my bag and get my score and 
Well, See that question mark? It's because of the <laughs> question <Yeah>. mark. <laughs> and so I've gone from, oh, from those types of things all the way to having a director come in as a chorister. And uh, I don't know if you've ever worked. He's a German guy. His name's Axel. Um, he's a German oh. director, young guy. Fit, fit, young German dude. He might have been uh, he might have been the guy who remounted our Giovanni for us in Barcelona. It may have been Giovanni when kind we did of, it at LA Opera. Okay, yeah, he was like uh, he, he's worked a lot with Christoph Loy. Yeah, he's real fit. He and, wears sneakers and, like, and yeah, yeah. I think it sounds like the same guy. He came in and knew all of our f- names like on day one. He would come in and he he'd obviously had looked at the book with all of our pictures and our costumes and stuff, and mm-hmm. he knew every single bit of what he's doing and it's 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 incredible to work with both of those types of people and it It is it happens a lot well and i think uh, again maybe a potentially unpopular uh, like point of view but i think one that is real and, and worth taking a look at is that um if you're a brilliant director uh, and you can memorize an entire opera score or all the choruses names, or you can speak six languages or, or whatever. And you have this incredible theatrical mind for the sake of people like you and me and opera lovers and opera singers and opera goers everywhere. We just have to cross our fingers and hope that that brilliant person loves opera too and wants to work in opera because I think because we lack the, financial resources in the opera world that say Hollywood has or, or Broadway even. And the saddest part is that since um, we lack the sort of popular cultural influence support, yeah. Mm-hmm. Since there's, since, 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 you know, they don't talk about the new opera on the nightly news or, or on, you know, uh, Oprah is not at the opening night of the new production of, or whatever that uh, unfortunately I think a lot of times those talents go elsewhere. They go to Hollywood or they go to Broadway or whatever, if they're not innately drawn to opera. And uh, I think that uh, unfortunately that ethos runs throughout the different skill sets within the opera world. If you're Ari Gold from like entourage fame, if you're like the most cutthroat brilliant agent in the world, we have a lot of wonderful agents in the opera world. Um, but, you know, you hope that the most brilliant people love opera because they're not going to come here to get rich or to, you know, be the center of culture, uh, sadly. And again, I, I hope that is something on a, on a very macro scale that the better opera can be, the more accessible, the more culturally relevant, the more popular uh, that in aggregate, I think will help us solve a lot of our problems, bringing more talent and more interest and more money and more influence and everything. And so, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I vacillate from day to day between being, Hey, I'm going to learn my music. I'm going to show up. I'm going to sing pretty and be nice and go yeah. home. And the other part of me, that's like, I'm going to start my own company and change everything. <laughs> you know? it's a, it, yeah. It's the same for me. It's the same for me. I, um, I mean, going back to what you're saying, one of the solutions before I move forward, one of the solutions I see to, towards that, I don't want to call it a cultural crisis that opera is facing, but in some ways it is. And I don't see, I don't see our art form um, gaining more cachet and maybe has kind of held on to its own in some way. But I think the introduction of Hollywood talent in directors and lighting and 
costuming and stagecraft. I think it's a really great thing for the opera community. And whenever we've had um, film directors come and direct at LA, I'm always surprised that it doesn't happen more being in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, it, yeah, if that goes especially. back to, yeah, I wonder if that goes back to your um, thoughts about raising money. Is it harder to get money from serious opera lovers and patrons when people from Hollywood are introduced into our, you know, injected into our art form? Well, I wonder, that's another difficult angle in our world is that, uh, you know, we did a lot of market and budget research too. Every opera company in the United States is, uh, what do you call it? Not a, a 501c3. So they have to publish annual reports with all kinds of budgetary information. So we're able to go through and learn a mm -hmm. lot about how these companies run. Um, and one of the most significant things we learned was that the most successful opera companies in the country earn about 30% of their revenue from ticket sales. Mm -hmm. So well more than two thirds of pretty much every opera company, uh, their their budget is is from raising money. And again, one of the other things we tried to do with Mess was raise a humongous endowment so that we can basically operate in perpetuity, just skimming the interest off the top, um, which was, you know, or asking for $10,000 checks, but also being like, you know, if you were on it like a $10 million check, we could operate <laughs> forever. <laughs> um, but uh, all that is to say that I think a lot of opera companies serve two masters. They're trying to attract new people. They're trying to get new people in the door and drum up interest. But, um, and this is a generalization, but I'm, I'm afraid a lot of times the most passionate and deep pocketed supporters of the opera, uh, I think oftentimes are traditionalists. And you want to do that new Tosca to really bring out the modern themes and, and bring in new people. But at the same time, if you don't do the favorite old production of the person who's paying for it, you don't get the check. So it's like, well, are we, are we doing this production for the guy who's paying for it or for the 20,000 people who are going to come see it during the run? And you kind of have to do both. And that's tricky. I think some people would love to have a film director come do something. And other people would be terrified that it was going to turn into some trashy Hollywood, whatever. So it's, yeah. you know, and, and again, that's like another one of the difficulties of um, it's like being president. It's like, good luck. I wouldn't want that job. And I think there's a lot of things I'd like to do to, to, to freshen up the opera world and everything. But at the same time, man, God bless Christopher Cowell. She's a, brilliant guy so it's josh winograd and a lot of people who run these companies but uh i i, I often don't envy uh the, the challenges that they're presented with they're not insignificant not yeah. to mention all the the sort of um cultural things going on with opera a lot of you know two three hundred year old sort of social mores that are very clearly on display in the themes of these operas that are uh not terribly friendly to our new social perspectives and things that we have to try and take the good with the bad and, and, and make of it what we can. That's a really interesting uh, conversation to get into. I, I feel the same way about actors. What do you, what's the end game here? Do we, I mean, when we do Pearl Fishers, do, do, does the cast need to be Southeast Asian? Is that, is first of all, is that viable? That's, that's just, that's a yes or no uh, answer, but is it um, reasonable? Isn't it, is it reasonable to go down that route with Otello, with things right. like that? Well, and I think it, it should be considered and everything, but um, 
also it's a weird space to get into as like a straight white guy, you know, because I know that my perspective comes with a lot of inherent, um, you know, uh, yeah. privileges and, sure. and things. But I, I think at the end of the day, you have to prioritize and say, okay, well, is opera here to, uh, uh, to, to promote social justice? Is it here for the music? Is it here for the cultural impact, whatever? Um, and I think I, I have uh, friends who are, uh, uh, you know, who are of a, a larger body type who for years have, uh, I think rightfully so, felt a little marginalized because they don't look like a Hollywood romantic lead or whatever. And I think that's um, equally a, 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 a touchy, difficult area. It's opera. It should be prima la voce, you know, always, always the voice. But uh, that's one of the weird ways in which opera has tried to compete with Hollywood. Well, we don't really want to put it on camera. We don't want to make it cheaper. But uh, we have to make all of our singers look like Brad Pitt. It's like, well, it's market driven. It has to be just like everything. Right. Yeah, sort of. But it's weird the ways in which opera chooses to pay attention to the market and the other areas in which they blame the audience. Good, that's a good point. Yeah. Good. <laughs> you point. know, and um, so that's a, you know. That's, that's a really tough thing, but I, I guess to fall back to sort of a, a default place that I have in, in this discussion is that um, is to frame it in, 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 the, in the perspective of like cultural appropriation, right? I don't want to take a, a, a traditional African-American hymn and go release it as a single and make a bunch of money and say, yep, this is my song. I wrote it like credit where credit is due. Um, and you know, there's the question of like, should a straight white guy even approach that repertoire? Well, and, and this goes to the opera and the casting thing too, is that, uh, why, why do people want to live in LA? Why do people want to live in New York culture? I want to go have Ethiopian food at three in the morning. Uh, I want to go practice my Italian with the guy who runs the Italian restaurant. I want to go to the Polish guy who fixes shoes in my neighborhood, whatever. Um, to some degree, culture is cultural appropriation. I want to experience your culture. I want to pick up the parts of it that I love. I want to learn how to make pierogies. Now, I'm not going to say I invented pierogies. If I sing Otello, I'm not going to say, yes, I am a Moor. Moor. Uh, uh, right. uh, but, but at the same time, I'm an actor. You know, I mean, if I'm the flip side of that is from now on, am I only allowed to play straight white men? You know, I mean, I probably shouldn't be playing a, an African-American character for sure. But I mean, is it wrong for me to play a gay character? Would it be wrong for me to play a murderer? I've never murdered anybody as far as you know. Uh, you know, and where do you then draw that line? I mean, our job is to use our imagination and our voice. To and to pretend, to pretend to be somebody else. Exactly. And that's the fun of it. And uh, yeah, and that's, you know, maybe unpopular, but I, I do believe it. Appropriation maybe is the wrong word, but when does it become we're not allowed to share culture anymore? Because at that point, or, or certain ideas are off limits. You're not allowed to experience this book or this idea. It might be offensive or whatever. Mm -hmm. When you start saying this is an idea that me as your counselor or your law legal congressman or whatever says, I don't trust you as an adult with this concept, with this idea. That's, you know, that's a scary place to be. That's whichever side you're on. That's, that's 
in parallel with burning books, if you ask me. So all that is to say, yeah, with the opera, I don't know. Again, I'm glad that's not my decision to make, but I think that we all need to have open hearts and open minds and uh, and and welcome each other into our world, into our art, and, uh, and you know, all of that. Yeah, 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 and that that is the thing that I like the most about what we do, and it's the thing that I miss as a as a as a principal is the ability to create this character and to find i don't i don't even know if it's a matter of creating a character it's a matter of the character finding you through the rehearsal process i don't know how it is mm -hmm. for you but for me when i was singing principal roles i would get to a point in the rehearsal process where i would actually say it to somebody or i'd call somebody or i'd go back to my apartment or hotel or whatever and and think oh like the care i know what the character is now in mm -hmm. the context of this cast and this production and what my part in it and is yeah. that what what is that something that happens to you and what what is it about what we do um that you like the most yeah well um originally having been a film person and my experience in that world uh i found my greatest successes in that world not with someone saying, here's a blank piece of paper, write a brilliant screenplay and go make it. That's really hard. Um, the, the, the few times that I, uh, I, I made a short film that toured the world and played 30 film festivals and won some awards. And I won uh, a couple of commercial directing competitions where you get kind of a concept or, you know, a product, come up with a concept, write it, film it. Which is to say, in that world, I found myself most successful when I was operating between here and here, not just wide open, but here's your parameters, make something work in this. And I thought I was really good at that. Uh, with opera, it's kind of like that. It has to be in Italian. Here's the story. Here's the music. Stylistically, it's this, it's that. And also you have a director who's going to tell you this is the production. Here's the setting. So you get to be creative, but it's like between here and here. You know, your, your creativity comes out in your ornaments or your melisma or how long you hold this formata and and you know your body and your stagecraft and everything like that so um weirdly I, I find those structures and those parameters to kind of drive the creativity find new ways to be creative and, and different ways to uh to see how the character acts in that world and reacts so it, it's somewhere in there and um you know it yeah, also for me, it's the, I guess for me, it's like the personality of the character is what I'm trying to, yeah, to get the personality at. and the, the music can be very expressive for that. Right. And, uh, right. and it's interesting to see one character saying the same words, singing the same music, uh, in different productions. Well, this one's set in Coney Island. Well, in this one, you're punk rockers in this right. one, you're some kind of weird space cowboy. It's like, right. Okay. Or how um, angry is Don Ottavio? How vengeful is Don Ottavio? Is he a, is he a right. wimp? Is he strong? Is he? Yeah. And the, you do have these little tiny avenues you can go through phrase yeah. by phrase as you're singing your aria. And that's where a director who doesn't know what he's doing can kind of work in your favor sometimes. Yeah. Like, oh, no, in this line, <laughs> what's really going on, this is the subtext and this and that. And you can kind of stand up for what you think is right, you know get shot down and told to stand on your head anyway but right but yeah, so what's it's, your it's, favorite part what's your favorite part of being an opera singer and what's your least favorite part of being an opera singer i know these are like typical ooh. uh typical questions but i'm compelled to ask that one i don't think i've heard before there i don't think i've heard that before i mean um you know how the french they say le petit mort 
you know the the, the little sure. death sure this is this is french for uh uh you know sexual climax right and i always think of uh i think of getting a cold as like the real le petit mort because for a few days you're tired you're in bed your superpower is gone you can't sing and all you want to do is sleep and then all of a sudden you're healthy again and you're like oh I can breathe. The sun is shining. I can sing again. My superpower is back. Oh my God. It's really like a little death and you come back to life and you appreciate all these little things. Um, and every time I get sick, no matter what, you know, I'm fed up with singing. Ah, you know, my voice is tired today. You're like, Oh, I know it didn't sound quite right or whatever. Then for some reason you can't sing for a week and you come back and you can sing, even if it's alone in a room Oh, it feels so good. It feels so good. It's like opening your mouth and like light just comes out, you know, it just feels sure. great. And so um, I had, I had somebody tell me way back in college that, uh, you know, the whole, if, if there's anything else you can do and be happy, do that because there's so much bullshit. You'll have to deal with the traveling and it's difficult on your family and silly directors and administrators and uh, cast members who don't know their music or who are jerks or whatever you you need to enjoy singing you need to look forward to getting to rehearsal and shutting out everything else closing your eyes and living in your voice and your singing and uh uh that's not something that i really felt at the time but i really do now i really look for especially in covid the few chances i've had to like go be in a room with the pianist and sing with someone i just relish i look forward to i love to sing it's really really nice and uh the, the the bad parts are you know sometimes everything else sometimes only a little bit of everything else but uh uh you know traveling can be great but there's also you're gonna end up spending a lot of time by yourself in a city where you don't know anybody and i've been on contracts before that felt like i was in jail nothing i i i, I there's nothing for me there it's cold there's nothing to do uh, I don't know anybody. Maybe I'm not friends with anybody in my cast. And no matter what I do, nothing will get me home sooner. I just have to sit and wait. And if it's a bad production or my colleagues aren't cool or my voice is acting weird or I'm in Toronto in February, that can be the downside. So you better be looking forward to the singing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's great, yeah. man. Great answer. It's, thank you. Oh, well, thanks. Good question. You're, you're, you know, you got this interview thing down. <laughs> uh, I'm trying. It's really this this uh, doing it on video is a different thing. And, you know, I, I took about a year and a half off and mm -hmm. it's like singing. It's like anything. You just you get rusty and oh, yeah. coupled coupled with covid and not being around people. The first few interviews, I felt like I didn't know how to I didn't know how to interact with people, <laughs> just a human, another human being. It's crazy. I know. Yeah, it is weird. I've like, you know, being outside, I think is fairly, fairly safe in covid times. And yeah. so it's so warm here and beautiful. I've been able to link up with some old friends. And that's been one of the interesting things is like starting to see friends again, the friends who are like, Oh man, COVID has been amazing. All I've been doing is writing and being creative and all this stuff. And then the other friends who are yeah, two thirds of, 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 of what I remember them being and they're quieter and they're less outgoing. And uh, I, I feel for, both people because I, I feel both of those in myself and i think it's been a lot of people have you know dealt with it and reacted in different ways and some people have gone inwards and been depressed or dealt with difficult things in their life and uh it's been interesting to see how it it's affected people but uh but yeah, yeah. You, 
it's exhausting too. The first time I hung out with somebody for three hours, I came home and was like, Oh God. And you're like so me. You're like me. You're a, you're an extrovert. I'm an, I'm a very extroverted person and I love being, well, with I'm people an extroverted I... introvert. That's, that's Are you, is that, is that a good, is that a fair assessment of yourself? You think? Totally. Yeah. I love being around people, but when I need to recharge my batteries, I need to come inside and read a book for a day and then I'm good to go. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I had trouble getting back in the swing of things, but like I mentioned, we've got some ill people in the family and we've, and I've got kids and, and my wife's been very nervous about COVID as, as have I. And so we became very insular and I've got, mm-hmm. um, I've got some friends that we used to go to brunch every Sunday together with my friend, Eric and, and his other friends. And we've just now started doing that here in the, in the, at the house and we've got a back, you've been to our house, we've got a back, yeah, backyard yeah. and, and we set it up in the backyard, which is really nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been challenging to do this. I, I feel kind of self-conscious and it, it, but the challenge has been really good for me in that I all, almost feel like my old self again, talking to nice. people at, at least like this. And, uh, yeah, so I, me too. Well, and that's kind of the, uh, always be wor- more worried if things have been too good for too long. Yeah. You know, I, I think hardship and difficulty sucks. Nobody wishes for it. Nobody wants it, but it makes it it makes almost everything and everyone stronger Sweeter. in one way or another mm-hmm. or or if nothing else points out areas where you need to be stronger and more resilient and adaptable and uh uh i i think that this has been in a really um fast-paced not terribly uh, intrinsically reflective society i think being alone in a room with no work to do and nothing to do for months on end has probably been as painful as it's been for a lot of people has been immensely helpful and clarified for many people what matters and what doesn't and, and where you want to be and what you want to be doing. And, uh, I, you know, I, I just, I could never express how sorry I am for everyone who's, who's been sick and who have lost loved ones. And, and, and I hope we've all done everything we can to be safe and, and prevent that from happening. But, um, for, the survivors of this war which it feels like you know this is the closest thing i could think of what it must have been like to live through world war ii and rationing yeah. and, and all that stuff um that, that we're all going to be wiser and stronger and more and resilient and adaptable mm-hmm. and kinder and value things like each other's company art uh live performance all that stuff i i'm just i couldn't i couldn't express how excited i am for, for what's going to be happening in the next couple of years as we come out of this and just explode into hedonistic, artistic uh, reverie for, for years to come. Hopefully, I really think the Roaring Twenties analogy is uh, is is so apt and, and not exaggerated. I, I'm just so excited for what's to come. It's going to be well, a good I time. Share, I share in your enthusiasm, friend, and I, I cannot thank you enough for being a guest today. It's really great yeah. to see your your big bearded face again. It's really nice to see you, buddy. Man, it's great to see you too. I wish we kept in better contact through these years. You're, you're one of my favorites, man. When, oh, you know, thanks, brother. hopefully all this call, I'm supposed to be back here in LA, uh, actually exactly a year from now doing, uh, doing a Bach thing with the opera. So, we'll so have to I'm, cross are, paths you, then. are you making LA your home base right now? I mean, are you, is that the plan? Well, for going? now I was, I was originally thinking, yeah, I've got a couple of months, per year of work in new york on the calendar for like the next four years and sadly the west coast feels a little bit like an island in the opera world because 
everything's so much closer together on the west east coast there's more opera companies you're closer to europe all that so my original thought was to kind of base in um in new york but i was in kansas city with my family over the holidays thinking yeah you know i'll go like kind of make my new start i'll be in new york for new year's eve and start 2021 there and but on my way to kansas city i drove through southern california and saw some friends and i'm sitting in kansas city in the snow in december thinking <laughs> do i want to go to new york in january hell no so i came back i got all these friends here and uh i mean i was golfing in February. Come on. Yeah. Like, so I don't know. LA is a, is a very seductive mistress to, uh, yes. to, to keep hanging around in my life. So who knows? I mean, in a perfect world, if I had millions of dollars, I'd have a place in the Hills here and a place with a park view in New York, but you know, we'll see which studio apartment I end up in. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's good. It's great to see you buddy. And, and thanks for the time. And, uh, yeah, I wish course, you nothing likewise. but, uh, nothing but the best coming for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's good to see you, man. Well, there you have it folks, the terrifically talented, kind and generous Ben bliss. Thanks for being on the show, Ben. I always love chatting with you and I can't wait for the day that we get to, spend a little time together, sing together again, and just uh, pal around backstage. I hope you enjoyed our interview. As always, thanks for listening. Be kind, do good work, and until next time. 